Well, good morning. Uh, Joe Rodman and I did rock, paper, scissors to see which manly man with a red beard would preach today, and I won. So uh, you guys get me today, which means I'm going to say hi to my daughter, Olivia. Hi, Olivia. Dad's on TV. She's not here, and she thought it'd be cool to see Dad on TV. So I guess I'm on the internet, but it's on TV. I don't know. I, I always wanted to be able to say hi, Mom, or hi, hi kid on TV. Are any of you familiar with the phrase goat? You probably heard the word goat. I don't mean a farm animal who is notorious for eating any garbage it comes across, or the person you take to the final tribal council on Survivor who has no chance of winning with you. Might be another time you've heard goat. Goat is actually an acronym for greatest of all time. And we see this acronym used a lot, especially in the world of sports. So like Michael Jordan is considered the GOAT basketball player, the greatest of all time. Some might say LeBron James and they can make a case there. Others might say Kobe Bryant and they don't know what they're talking about if they say that. Or in baseball, Babe Ruth is considered the GOAT, the greatest of all time. Personally, that one's a hard one for me because uh, Willie Mays played baseball and he was good at all aspects of baseball, whereas Babe Ruth hit a lot of home runs and apparently ate a dozen hot dogs before each game that he played. I just don't, how can you be the greatest of all time if you're chowing down on a dozen hot dogs before you play. Greatness is a topic that seems to pop up often in, in our daily conversations with others. Uh, what's the greatest book you've read, movie you've seen, restaurant you've been to, vacation you've been on, and so on and so on. Just saying the word great is probably bringing uh, certain images to mind. It could be an athlete or an actor, an author, maybe a pastor, politician, Someone who made a dramatic impact on your life? It might be someone popping up right now in your mind. I think we all long and hope to be great in life, right? I mean, nobody wants to be like mediocre or bad at things in life. And if that is your aspiration, you're probably going to succeed. So I guess at least you're achieving your goals. But we all want to be great students, great parents, great spouses, great employees, great friends, great Christians. But what does it mean to truly be great? Well, in our passage this morning, Luke 7, 24 through 35, uh, we see Jesus acknowledge the greatness of John the Baptist while uh, pointing to a whole new way of thinking about greatness going forward. So I want to read the passage again, and I'll be honest, the first time I read this passage, and well, I mean, I've read this passage before, but in preparation for this sermon, I was like, what is happening here? So... Let's read it again. Try to pay attention, especially when we get to uh, the part at the end of Jesus talking again after the, the parentheses, because that part's confusing, and we'll explain that and see what it means to have true greatness. All right, so this is Luke 7, 24 through 35. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in spended clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, 
not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Well, if you remember Dan's sermon from last week, he looked at the first 23 verses of Luke chapter 7, and there we saw John's disciples come to Jesus, and they want to make sure that Jesus is the right one that John has been pointing to as the Messiah. Even John, who's the forerunner to the Messiah, he he wasn't 100% sure this was the right guy because John had his own expectations and ideas of what the coming Messiah would look like. Jesus responds by saying, he doesn't say, I'm the Messiah. He says, look at everything that you're seeing. Look at all the miracles that have been done. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy of the time of the Messiah. So Jesus' answer is just, look at the works. Look at what's happening around you. And that answer is all that they need to hear. So as John's disciples leave to bring the message, the word, the answer back to him, Jesus uses this opportunity to validate John's ministry and the results of that ministry. So Jesus turns to the crowd and asks them, what did you go out into the desert to see? He actually asked this three different ways. You didn't just go out to see reeds blown by the wind. Now, when I first read this, I'm like, all right, is this a reference to like, John is standing firm. He's not going to be easily shaken by something. No, it, it seems like a literal thing of that. You didn't go out 50 miles into the desert to go see something common, like a reed that just blows in the wind. You could open your front door and see that right outside if you wanted to see a reed blowing in the wind. That's not why you go out there. Did you go out to see a man dressed in fine clothes? Well, we know John was wearing camel skins, which was not the fashion impact you would think it would be at that time. So they didn't go out for a fashion runway show for the newest collection. You wouldn't go 50 miles out into the desert to see a dude dressed in camel skins. Maybe you would. Now I wouldn't go 50 miles in the desert. Uh, No, you're not going to do that. You'd hang around the entrance to Herod's palace if you want to see people wearing expensive clothing and indulging in luxury. So why did you go out there? And Jesus said, you went to go see God's prophet. At the time that John the Baptist came onto the scene, it had been 400 years since anybody had heard God's voice. The people of Israel were beginning to wonder, where, where was God? What's he doing? And, and what is God going to do now that the Romans are occupying the promised land that God had given to us so many years before? Then one day, they heard that a prophet had begun preaching in the wilderness. Many were going there and listening closely to his words, which were, were quite convicting and, and awakening things inside of them. Friends of theirs are repenting of their sin and being baptized. So they had gone to the wilderness in order to hear a prophet one who spoke God's word. If you know your, your Old Testament history, you know that God in the past used prophets many, different, many times and in many different ways. Uh, Paul writes in Romans that we, we generally know God just through looking at his creation, points that there must be a creator, through uh, that voice that we hear in our consciences. But most clearly, God has spoken to us through his servants, the prophets. God has made his mind known to them through Abraham and Moses, Samuel and David, uh, Elijah, Isaiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, many, many others. The only way that we can actually know 
God is through what he has revealed to us, right? We can't just figure out things about God unless he reveals it to us. And before Christ came, that had been by the prophets. John was the last of these prophets, sent from God after centuries of silence to speak God's heart and mind to the people. But John was more than a prophet. John the Baptist was the prophet. John was a selected promise prophet. In verse 27, Jesus is actually quoting Malachi 3.1 there. It says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who prepare your way before you. The other prophets, they're all pointing to the eventual coming of the Messiah. This reference in Malachi is talking about the messenger who would come to announce that Messiah is here right now among us. This messenger would be uh, the alarm clock to wake up sleeping Israel. He'd be the one preparing the nation to think again in terms of, of the living God and his word. He was the herald announcing the arrival of the king. And he also announced the preparation that was needed to meet God by dealing with your unbelief, your pride, your ungodliness. And that was John's task, calling on people to turn around, to repent. means to, you're going one direction, you turn around and go the other direction. So uh, turn back to God. However, Jesus elevates John the Baptist even higher than just this calling as a prophet. Herod, at this point, has thrown John the Baptist in prison. That's where John's sitting right now. But Jesus says, man, this isn't just a dude sitting in prison. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. There were hundreds of anonymous prophets in the Old Testament that we don't hear something about them. We just know that there's prophets out there that have been trained as prophets that are going around giving messages to the people. There are some prophets whose activities are recorded in, in just a single story or one or two verses. There's a prophet like Obadiah, whose his written prophecy is just one chapter. Then there's others like Isaiah, who has 66 chapters of his prophecy to the people. Some prophets had an incredible ministry and are people we refer to often or Jesus quotes often in his, his uh, ministry as well. But Jesus said that among those born of women, which just means humanity because we've all been born of a woman. And if you didn't know that yet, hey, you've learned something today, so congrats. There's no one greater than John. Why is he great? What makes him the greatest human who's been born? Well, he's great in being filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. We, we see that all the way back in Luke chapter 2. Uh, he's great in preaching repentance towards God. He's great in preaching the Lamb of God is here who will take away the sins of the world. He's great in his humility. Remember that incredible statement he makes? He, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease? It's an amazing statement. He's great in his courage in speaking of the sin of King Herod. He's great in his martyrdom. He's killed because he speaks out against the sin of King Herod. All of those things about him were great. But what made John truly great was that he was the bridge between the prophets of the Old Testament longing for the Messiah and, and being the one who got to say, that is the Messiah. What a privilege to be chosen to be able to point at Jesus and say, this is the one we've been waiting for all of these years. He's the one that will take away our sin once and for all. So this message is, what, what, is, what does it mean to be truly great? Well, we should end the message there. All right, because to be the greatest of all time, we have to be John the Baptist. None of us are John the Baptist. No human is greater than he is. Uh, 
good try if you want to have a debate about who the greatest human is, but since Jesus says it, like that kind of settles it. We can't have like a, a sports talking head debate about who the greatest is. It's John, all right? So uh, thanks for coming. Uh, I appreciate you listening. No, that's not the end of the message, right? There's more to it. Jesus goes on uh, to say something that blows away the audience. This is staggering what he says. He says in verse 28, end of verse 28, that the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he, is greater than John the Baptist, is greater than the goat, is greatest than the greatest of all time human, according to Jesus. All right, hold on there, Jesus. Like you just, with what you just said about John, what we know about him and the role that he played, he seems about as great as they come. So how can someone else possibly be greater than him? Well, John might have been the bridge that connected the old covenant of the law to the new covenant of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection, but John didn't get to experience that. Unfortunately, uh, John is executed before Jesus completes his mission. So we are greater in the privileges that we enjoy that John never had. Think about what you've done, what you've experienced, what you know that John didn't get. We've heard Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount. We've seen Lazarus rise from the dead. We've witnessed the Son of God washing the feet of his disciples. We've heard the discourse in the upper room and the high priestly prayer. We've seen the institution of the Lord's Supper. We've seen Christ arrested, lashed, and nailed on his hands and feet to the cross. We've seen the spear thrust into his side. We've seen him dead and taken down from the cross. We've seen the stone rolled away on the third day and Jesus risen. We've walked with him on the road to Emmaus as he explained how all of the scriptures pointed towards him. We've stood with 500 others and met with him. We've seen him ascend to heaven. We've seen the Holy Spirit poured out on the feast of Pentecost in Jerusalem. We've seen the conversion of Saul of Tarsus into Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. We've seen the church grow and spread and fill all the world over the last 2,000 years. We've been to Wittenberg and seen Luther nailing the 95 theses to the door. We've been to Geneva and heard John Calvin preach. We've heard Jonathan Edwards preach sinners in the hands of an angry God in New England, one of the most famous sermons ever. We've heard Charles Spurgeon become the greatest preacher since Jesus, probably, uh, is what people would say. We've seen Billy Graham lead hundreds of thousands uh, into faith with Jesus Christ, and so on, and so on, and so on. John the Baptist, he knew nothing of any of that. John the Baptist, he was filled with the Holy Spirit to equip him to do the ministry he was called to do, but he never saw anyone who put their faith in Jesus Christ be filled with the Holy Spirit and be given gifts and abilities and talents to continue the, the mission to change the world. He said the Messiah is here, but he didn't get to take part in the new covenant of salvation through Christ's sacrifice and resurrection. If I got to experience all of that, if I can look at God's word and know all of that, doesn't that make me greater than John in my privilege and what I've got to experience? Does it make you greater than John in what you've gotten to, to hear and experience? So isn't the least in the kingdom of God as it has now been established because of what Christ has done greater than anything John the Baptist could have seen or experienced? Greatness comes not from what we do, but through what Jesus has done for us. 
the greatest in the kingdom of God, the least of these, the one who humbles themselves, recognizes they are nothing without the grace and mercy and love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. True greatness comes when he is the greatest part of our lives. Well, after this mind-blowing statement about greatness, we see that there's these parentheses in, in verse 29 and 30. It's as if Luke at this point is almost looking straight up at Theophilus, the guy that he's writing this gospel to, and says to him, hey, Theophilus, the people, common people, they believed what Jesus was saying because they believed what John had said about needing to repent and be baptized. But unfortunately, there was a group that they didn't jump on board. They didn't get it. The people who had believed, they'd been prepared for him by John, who told them that the Christ was coming and that he would baptize with the Spirit. He was the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. Then the people heard Jesus for themselves on the mountain, or they overheard him speaking in a house, or they went down to the lake and heard him speaking on a boat. They thought deeply of what he said, his, his extraordinary claims, his, his beautiful character of being meek and loving and forgiving, while still speaking the hard truths that people needed to hear. They had goosebumps as they saw him heal every sick person brought to him and raise from the dead the son of the widow of Nain, which we saw in last week's passage. They considered his teaching and his life. They weren't swept up by emotion. They weren't manipulated by others. They came to this conclusion. He is the Messiah, the Son of God, uh, the Savior of the world, God's great prophet, the one promise from Moses and David and Isaiah. And they said, God's way is right. They justified what God had done, saying it is right. And then when they confess that, though, they're also saying that the Pharisees' way was wrong, that worshiping Caesar was wrong, that the Greek philosophers of their time were wrong. Jesus alone was the way, the truth, and the life. That was their commitment. From now on, God's way will be our way. Well, the Pharisees didn't see and believe all this, though. They were very good at understanding the minutia of the law without ever coming to grips with its essential message. They were concerned with the law of God, but not the will of God. So they rejected the purpose of God for themselves. Where common people had heard and responded to God's call to repent, these men remained in their complacency and smug self-satisfaction, and they found nothing to repent of. They rejected God's way. They refused John's baptism. They put themselves outside the blessing of God and would not give Jesus a fair chance when he came. So Jesus then goes on in this last part that can be confusing when you first read it, to warn the current generation of religious leaders about their response to John and, and to Jesus. He does so through a parable, as he so often does when discussing the kingdom or God's plan. He compares them to an ancient game of children at play. Uh, some commentators have called this parable, I love this, the parable of the brats. That's such a good title. Why is that not a heading in my Bible? That There's this, this one sentence, parable of the brats. Jesus is comparing the complaining children to this generation, to the Jewish leaders who objected to John and Jesus' teachings. They are like children who are seated and refuse to play because they're complaining that John and Jesus don't dance to the tune that they want to play. Whether they play a light tune on the flute 
or a funeral dirge, these two men do not follow the Jewish leadership's uh, desires. And it seems no matter what John or Jesus do, it's not good enough for them. That's where this next explanation comes in. Jesus is clarifying this parable. In verses 33 and 34, Jesus says that John ate no bread. He was famous for eating locusts and wild honey. Delicious. I'm eating that for lunch today. He drank no wine. This approach to sparse living was characteristic of, of holy men in many different religions, but it didn't impress the Pharisees. His teaching was too uncomfortable. So coupled with the way he lived his life, the verdict that they wrote him off with, he's got a demon. Only a guy with a demon wouldn't eat bread and would live out in the desert and would say this crazy message of repentance. Jesus, though, he didn't follow John's lifestyle choices. He, he ate and drank as ordinary people of the day did. People who rejected John for departing from normal, normal living should have accepted Jesus for being more like them, right? I mean, that just makes sense. But that's not what they did. They called Jesus a glutton and a drunkard and complained about who he decided to share meals with. He was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Religious people shunned such lowly people in their eyes, whereas Jesus looked down on no one. To win sinners for God, Jesus freely associated with them. And yet, people complained. After their attitude towards John, at this point, this is pure stubbornness. There's no reason behind, John's got a demon for not being like me. Jesus is a glutton and a drunkard for being like me. Like, you're just looking to complain. It's interesting that John and Jesus use different styles to accomplish the same goal, bringing sinners to God but the method isn't good enough for certain people. The fundamental issue in evangelism for us isn't in the style or form of evangelism, but in the commitment to lead people to God. John, withdrawn in the desert, and Jesus, the gluttonous friend of tax collectors and sinners, they're both accomplishing God's will. We should major not on style, but on having substance in our ministries. And I, issues of, of style are still with us today. We need to be careful not to confuse our expectations with the variety of styles God uses in ministry to reach a wide variety of people. Sometimes God is doing something powerful, but we miss it because of our expectations of what he should do and how he should do it. John anticipated that Jesus was going to take an instant road to glory. That's why uh, he has questions. He sends his followers to go and clarify who Jesus is. How, how often do we fall into the same trap? We sometimes expect God to do something in a certain way, and when he doesn't, we think that either God isn't listening, God doesn't care, or God has failed in some manner. This could pop up in a lot of ways. Maybe it's uh, God helping you to be successful at the job you're at or to keep the job you have. God promising to heal us from a devastating illness. Our expectation that the Christian life is going to be free of hardship if we just turn to Him. Any of the rules we make for how God must work may work against us when we choose to build character, when He chooses to build character by taking us down a harder road. We sometimes also place the same kind of expectations on those who minister to us. If they do not take us down a path of comfort or encouragement, then we conclude, well, God's not really working through that guy. If they don't emphasize discipleship the most, or evangelism the most, or prayer the most, or apologetics the most, or fill in the blank, 
wow, they might not be the right leader for a church. If the worship style or song choice of use of media or the way we decorate the stage isn't how you would do it, I don't know, is that really a good church? When we elevate the aesthetics of a ministry, our own personal wants and desires and preferences over the content of the ministry, we become like the little children in this parable who are complaining that their friends won't dance how they want to the music that they want to play. We should come with attitudes of grace and unity to our churches with a desire to support and encourage our leaders while also coming alongside them and being a part of God's greater plan. I hope we never become jaded to what God is doing around us. J.C. Ryle, in, in his commentary on this passage, this is what he says. The plain truth is that the natural heart of man hates God. The carnal mind is enmity against God. It dislikes his law, his gospel, and his people. It will always find some excuse for not believing and obeying. The doctrine of repentance is too strict for it. The doctrine of faith and grace is too easy for it. John the Baptist goes too much out of the world. Jesus Christ goes too much into the world. And so the heart of man excuses itself for sitting still in its sins. All this must not surprise us. We must give up the vain idea of trying to please everybody. The thing is impossible, and the attempt is a mere waste of time. We must be content to walk in Christ's steps and let the world say what it likes. Do what we will. We shall never satisfy it or silence its ill-natured remarks. It first found fault with John the Baptist and then with his blessed master, and it will go on quibbling and finding fault with the ma that master's disciples so long as one of them is left upon earth. I hope that we don't become people full of complaints in the kingdom of God, but instead are people full of joy and grace when we gather in his name and for his purposes. Jesus ends his observation with these words, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Now this verse, it might seem out of place when you first read it, like this just got tacked on to the end of his message here. It looks like Jesus is jumping almost to a completely different point after the comparisons he's just made. But the key to understanding these final statements is the word justified. So we see this word back in verse 29, when the tax collectors and the sinners declare God just. Those who believe that what John taught and what Jesus fulfills believe that this is true, this is right, this is just. When someone comes to that understanding, they are filled with wisdom the wisdom of what true greatness is, which is to put your trust in who Jesus is and what he's done. So the children of God who acknowledge God's way to be right are wise children. The children of God who accept God's purpose to be great are wise children. The proof of this is seen throughout their lives as they are guided by wisdom. Wisdom is justified by all her children. I think sometimes when we read the Bible, we often feel that the prophets of old, the people that lived during those times, they had all the advantages. We think, how great would it have been to, to be there alongside Moses or David, Elijah, Isaiah, John the Baptist? How amazing would it be to see God really work might be something we think of. But this passage shows that anyone who truly knows Jesus has greater blessings. Those Old Testament prophets would love to experience what we as believers have. It is easy to take our blessings for granted. 
The resources uh, we have are, are so great now. Just think, we, we have the Spirit of God within us, within our communities, within this room, at home, as you're watching this. We possess a forgiveness that is complete because of Jesus' finished work on the cross. To be a believer in this era is to have a spiritual advantage that the saints of old would have longed for. Our resting in the grace of Jesus' forgiveness, now obtained once and for all, and our permanent access to God through the Spirit, are benefits that the old era lacked. John the Baptist has nothing over us when it comes to access to God's grace. As hard as it is to believe, we are in a greater position than he was when he was even ministering as the forerunner to the Messiah. When we make Jesus and his kingdom the greatest part of our lives, that is when we will truly experience greatness. Let's pray together. Uh, dear Lord, I thank you for the great work that you've done of uh, taking on the form of a man, of living a perfect, sinless life, of uh, willingly hanging on the cross, of taking the punishment that we deserved for our sin, for our non-greatness, of giving us the opportunity to be forgiven, to be reconciled to you, and then rising from the dead to show uh, that death had been defeated, that sin had been defeated, and that we can have uh, eternal life through you. We can experience what it means to truly be great. God, I pray for uh, all of us listening to this that um, we would humble ourselves before you, that we would break ourselves down, that uh, we'd repent as, as John the Baptist preached and, and turn away from our life of sin and instead humble ourselves before you and what you've done. God, I thank you that we can't, as hard as we try, earn our salvation because we would all fall short. I thank you that you've given us a way uh, to be made right with you, to be justified by you through the work of Jesus Christ. God, I pray we wouldn't take that for granted, that in the moment we're in of being filled with the Holy Spirit, of being equipped with different gifts and abilities, that we get to come alongside each other, not just as Gresham Bible Church, but as a capital C church around the world to accomplish the goal of reaching others for you. God, don't let that be something that just pops in one ear and out the other. Let that truly change us and transform us. Let our greatness not come from uh, trying to have the most money, the best house, the, uh, the best job, the, the perfect hobbies, the whatever, all the toys and stuff we might invest in or being thought of someone with a great sense of humor or great knowledge about this or whatever it might be, God. I pray that we would pursue greatness through you, which means making uh, less of ourselves and more of you. God, please be with us this week. Give us opportunities uh, to hopefully share with other people. I pray too, as we're approaching the new school year, uh, you'd be with parents and children, that there would be uh, patience and unity and grace amongst each other as we figure out what life is going to be like going forward. I pray these things through Jesus' name. Amen.